Well, I know we have some visitors here tonight, and we're glad that you're here with us this evening. And just to briefly let you know what it is that we're studying on Sunday evenings, this is all in the context of a devotional book that most of us here in the congregation picked up at the beginning of the year called One Word. And it's a series of studies where we look at a different word every week. You read about it and and study on it every day. And then on the next Sunday, we're having a, a lesson that sort of ties these things together. Really important concepts that are foundational for us. And tonight, we're looking at the word kingdom. Now, this word kingdom occurs in the context of a unit on uh, God's church. So when we're talking about kingdom here, we're not talking just about kingdom generically. We're talking about the kingdom of God in particular, or the kingdom of heaven, the way Matthew typically refers to it in his gospel. The only difference there, most scholars think Matthew just chooses to use kingdom of heaven so as not to offend Jewish sensibilities. This is a a circumlocution or a euphemism. Uh, That is, Matthew's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. We know about that. He's trying to persuade them. And so the idea is that that phrase kingdom of God might be offensive to some. We know how... uh, careful the Jews were when it came to even writing or speaking the name of God. So at any rate, the terms kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven mean the same thing. The kingdom of God is an immensely important concept in Scripture. It's the theme of Jesus' preaching, if you remember. Just, for instance, the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, uh, he goes around saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Many of his parables were about the kingdom. You'd look at Matthew chapter 13, for example, and you can see that every single one of those parables in there, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And there's the the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in a field, so on and so forth in that chapter. He taught that the kingdom of God is to be our first priority. Passage we all know from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these material things that we so often worry about that he's cautioning us against being anxious about in context, all these things will be added to you if you get your priorities in order. Seek the kingdom first. The question is, what is it? (laughs) What are we talking about when we talk about this important concept of the kingdom of God. A number of different answers have been given to that over the years. Some have identified the kingdom of God primarily as this feeling that's within you, something that exists only within your heart. Some have identified it primarily with social justice. We've seen that a lot in the last couple of centuries in particular, that when you're going out and doing good works in the world, well, that's the the kingdom of God breaking in there. Uh, Some have identified it with a yet future uh, earthly kingdom that Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish and he'll reign here in that kingdom of God. Most of us, have probably heard it identified with the church in a one-to-one correlation so that when you read Kingdom of God, you can essentially insert church there into the text. And even though that's mostly right, or I'll say that's not wrong, what we're going to see tonight is I think even that answer 
as on the right track as it is, is not quite right. Or it doesn't capture the totality of what Scripture teaches about the kingdom of God. You see, when we consider how extensive the teaching is on the kingdom and the, the multifaceted way this is uh, expounded in Scripture, it makes this a particularly difficult question. Just to take what Jesus has to say, I'm not even going to go outside of what Jesus says on this at the moment. So just to take what Jesus has to say on the kingdom of God, for instance, at the moment. Frequently, Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God as being at hand. That's what we just saw from Mark chapter 1, right? The theme of his preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That Greek word at hand means that it's, it's right here, it's close, and not only is it close, it's, it's, it's like it's even breaking in now. It's so close you can, you can taste it. It's It's coming, but it's also, in a sense, already here. Well, when we read that, that does fit with the church, doesn't it? This idea of the kingdom that's here even now, breaking in, and it's on the immediate horizon in the imminent future. That fits with identifying the kingdom with the church. So normally, Jesus spoke of the kingdom as being in that imminent, immediate future. But sometimes, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in terms of the eternal bliss of the saved. So, for instance, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11. Or you could think about that picture of the judgment that we have in Matthew chapter 25, where those on the right hand are told, "'Come, you blessed of my Father.'" Enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So at sometimes Jesus uses kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, to refer to this eternal state for those who are saved. And then on the other hand, I guess is the third hand at this point, Jesus sometimes refers to the kingdom as being their present in his life. That is, it's not just breaking in in the future, it's right here, right now. So he refers to it as being present in his miracles. If it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You remember this? This is when the Pharisees accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And he says, no, Satan doesn't fight against Satan, but if I'm doing it by the power of God, then that means the kingdom is here. Sometimes he refers to it as being present in his proclamation, Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Sometimes he even refers to it as being there present in his presence. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Luke 17, 20, and 21. And that doesn't mean inside you. That means right here in your presence. So in other words, we put all this together and we see this is a complex question. We need to study this just a little bit more comprehensively. Now, I know for those of you in our Wednesday night class, just about a month ago, we talked about this pretty in depth. So I don't want to completely uh, plow that same ground again. But of course, not everybody is in there. And I do think this is a really important concept. So some of this will be uh, familiar to those of you in that class, but I think that's okay because this is something 
conceptually that causes a lot of confusion at times. And then we will come around to, to make some practical application. What difference does it make how we understand the kingdom of God? So let's begin by defining kingdom. What does this word mean? And here's what's most fundamental for really getting a proper understanding of the kingdom of God. In the biblical languages, whether we're talking about Greek, but also Hebrew, Aramaic, the idea of kingdom primarily refers to kingship. That is the rule, the reign, the authority that's exercised by the king. Now that's not the way that we typically use it in English. We typically use kingdom to refer to the place, the realm, the territory where a king exercises that authority. We think of it as the dominion, or the domain rather. But in biblical thought, it's the dominion. It's that authority that the king has. A good example of this, and we won't read it for time's sake, but is in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the rooftop of his palace in Babylon, and he looks out and he sees it, and he says essentially, aren't I awesome? <laughs> Look at everything here that I built with my own two hands. And a message comes to you, him from the Lord, O Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is given the kingdom is departed from you until he could acknowledge that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he will. And the point of that is not that the kingdom, the territory of Babylon, ceased to exist. It's that the rule, the kingship, was departed from him. So kingdom, in biblical thought, primarily refers to the rule, the reign of the king. Now with that said, obviously, a king has to rule over something. Or over someone. And so we do sometimes see kingdom used in that secondary sense of the people who are ruled over or the territory over which the king rules. That's the way we primarily think of it in English, but that's the secondary sense in biblical thought. Uh, but we do see this used in the New Testament. Remember when the devil takes Jesus up, that last temptation, and he says, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. He's referring to the places here. Or you think about uh, Herod Antipas when Salome is dancing in front of him and he's so smitten with that, he says, you just name what you want and I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. He's talking about the territory that he rules over. So we put all this together. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, we primarily mean the rule of God. The reign of God. In fact, I think that's a better way to talk about it. I, I try to use that terminology mostly myself when I'm not reading here because I think to our modern minds that conveys what's being talked about better. God's rule, God's reign. It refers to his power, his activity, his majesty, his authority more than anything else. The whole idea here is that God is at work. God's accomplishing his purpose. God is reigning. But God's rule does involve a people. A king can't be a king in a vacuum. He has to reign over something. Uh, the whole idea of God being king presupposes that he has some people that he's ruling over. Uh, God, in fact, creates the people over which he rules. So usually kingdom of God refers to God's ruling authority. But sometimes kingdom of God does refer to the people 
over which he rules. And once we understand that, these concepts that we often miss, we're in a much better position to understand the totality of what the Bible teaches about God as king. Now on one level, just the bottom level, all of creation belongs to God and is talked about as his kingdom. God is often portrayed in the Old Testament in particular as the king over the universe. So, for example, the 103rd Psalm, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Or again, Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. It is he who made the earth by his power. So God created the world, the universe, everything in it. He rightfully exercises his rule over it. Frequently, he's talked about as the king, the ruler of the universe in that sense. Uh, As the king over creation, God controls the world. A number of the Psalms speak to that. You could probably think of your own favorite examples right now or just just flip through them for yourself and see how frequently God's talked about as uh, king in the heavens in that sense. Just as he's king over the whole universe, he's also king over the earthly nations, the kingdoms of this world, and gives them to whoever he will. We alluded to that already from Daniel chapter 4, that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. He gives them to whomever he will. So God is the one who rules over everything. He has all authority, all power. But the big problem that Scripture presents us with is that not everyone recognizes that. We're created to be in subjection to God, to serve him as his loyal subjects. But of course, we know back in the very beginning in the garden, humanity rebelled. We don't want to keep that subservient position. We want to be our own boss. We want to be kings for ourselves. And so ever since then, since sin entered the world and this relationship has been fractured and humanity has been in rebellion, God has persistently made efforts to bring humanity back into that right relationship with him, for them to choose him, to voluntarily submit to him as Lord. That's what God wants. Now, one day, everybody's going to submit to him as king, whether they want to or not. Uh, Paul talks about that, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, that at the end, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. One day, if we haven't acknowledged him in this life, we're going to acknowledge him. We're going to be forced to. But that's not God's desire. He wants us to to choose to submit to him now. And that brings us to how we understand the relationship between the kingdom of God and the church. Because as I said before, well, some... Some have seen these two things historically as completely distinct. There's uh, this French scholar, and his name escapes me now, but he had this quip, you know, Jesus preached the kingdom and the church came. He saw these things as distinct. Most of us have been taught that the church and the kingdom are exactly identical. And what I'm suggesting here is that's not quite right. Even if it's on the right track, it's not exactly right. God is recognized in Scripture as king over the universe, He's king over the nations. In particular, if you read through the Old Testament, he's presented as being the king over Israel 
in a special sense. He has a relationship with his chosen people, his covenant people, Israel, that he doesn't have with the rest of the world. And so he's frequently referred to as king. He's said to be ruling over his people. You could again read through the Psalms and see not only are there those who talk about him as king over the universe, but there are a number of them that talk about his enthronement as king in Zion, in his holy hill, ruling there over the Jewish people. The Israelites then were to trust in his rule. They were to be God's loyal subjects and to demonstrate that loyalty that they were his particular people. He ruled over them. He provided for them. And that was to be a light to the nations. This was to be an example in the midst of a rebellious world. You think about God's idea, his ideal for Israel. We see that in the Exodus. He calls them up out of there, and it's not because of any great thing that they do. It's all based on God and God's love and his protection and his care for them. You see it in the conquest. You read through Joshua and Judges, and the whole point there is that they're to trust God. God's going to fight for them. And it's, in fact, when they try to take things on themselves and take things into their own hands that they go astray and they end up being defeated. God's promised them he's going to fight their battles for them. Best example is uh, the spies, right? A story that we all know. Uh, Twelve spies are sent into the land of Canaan, and... Ten of them come back with this report that we can't do it. There are too many of them there. They're too big, too numerous. We got no chance. Now, of course, they've seen God defeat the mightiest empire in the world at that time in Egypt. They've seen him repeatedly provide for them, but they don't trust in his rule. And so because of that, an entire generation wastes away in the wilderness. And, of course, once God rebukes them for that, they decide, well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to try to get it ourselves. And you remember, they're defeated completely there. And it's because they're trusting themselves rather than relying on God as king. Well, we fast forward a few centuries, and by choosing them, a human king, remember God's goal is for Israel to demonstrate that he's ruling over them. When they come to Samuel and they ask for a human king, what they're effectively doing is choosing to be just like the nations around them. We don't want to fulfill this plan that God has for us. We want to be just like everyone else. They reject this way of life that's characterized by complete and utter dependence on God as their ruler. Most of us probably remember that when they come to Samuel, they're agitating for a king, they say, Hey, you're getting old, your sons are corrupt, give us a king like the nations around us. They want to be like everyone else. Samuel's upset he doesn't want to do that because he sees it as inconsistent with God's ideal. And you remember probably what God tells him. Go ahead and do it. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. Now, even after Israel rejected God, God still didn't abandon them. He tried to utilize their kings to accomplish his purpose. And we remember that that met with mixed results at best, especially after the divided kingdom. Every one of those kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, was bad. Only a handful of the ones of Judah were good. And ultimately, the kings as a whole rejected God and his will, and the nation suffered on account of that. And so in the midst of all of this suffering, 
the fact that they had turned their backs on God, the prophets looked forward to a day when God would take charge again. He would come and he would establish his kingdom and he would reign, he would rule, he would do this new thing and he would set everything right. That's the background to the New Testament. Everybody's looking for the Messiah to come. They're looking for God to come to take charge, to establish his kingdom, to set things right. And so when Jesus goes around saying, Repent, because the kingdom of God, God's rule, God's reign is at hand. It's breaking in. What he's saying is that God was doing that. God's taking charge in me. Jesus was saying that in his work, in his life, his ministry, his miracles, his teachings, and then in particular in his death and resurrection, God was becoming king. This is what the prophets had looked for all along. And so those in the kingdom, and here's the connection between God's reign and the church, those who are in the kingdom of God are those who've accepted the lordship of Christ, those who've submitted to him. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of his love, the rule, the reign there. But when we understand it that way, that shows how those in the church are in the kingdom of God. This also does help us to understand better why sometimes Jesus and other New Testament writers can talk about the kingdom of God as being in the future. At present, the kingdom of God is manifested in the church. That's where he rules, where he reigns, where his people. But right now, whether we realize it or not, the kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of the devil. And Paul talks about our battle being not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, powers, with these dark cosmic forces. He says in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22 that it's only through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. There is this war going on. But we know, we have confidence, faith, that the victory's already been won. The outcome of this isn't in doubt. God's won. In Jesus, sin, death, those things have been conquered. One day, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to wrap up all of history, and this kingdom that's been given to him, he reigns in it now. He's going to hand it back over to the Father who gave it to him. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Or the way John puts it in Revelation, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It's Revelation eleven fifteen. So what's the point of all of this? You know, you might think, well, this sounds interesting, and maybe I understand the kingdom a little bit better than I did before, but, but what difference does it make if we get this right or not? This isn't something that's just academic. There are some real applications for how we live out our lives. And first of all, and there's more, incidentally, that we could say, I'm just going to make a few, but I want to talk about how it affects God and how it affects us. First of all, this informs our understanding of God. See, the kingdom of God is an active concept. It means that God's in control. God is ruling. God is reigning. This isn't something static. When we think of the kingdom of God, we shouldn't just think of you know, territory on a map. This is about the king, that's the most important thing to say about a kingdom if it means reign, right? 
Kingdom means that there is a king, and he's exercising kingship. He's in charge. The proclamation that Jesus makes that in him the kingdom of God is breaking in, that means that what the prophets look to, it's been accomplished. It's going on even now. In Jesus, God is reigning in this real, concrete way in the world. God is taking charge. God is setting things right. He's not a way off up yonder, somewhere distant from us, untouchable. God is ruling. He's reigning in this world now. He's active. He's at work. I'm not claiming that we can always see or understand how that happens, but we take that on faith. That's what the idea of the kingdom means. God's ruling this world. But secondly, what this means for us, the idea of the kingdom of God, God's rule creates a people. The king has to rule over someone. In the church, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We inhabit God's holy nation. That's what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. He's drawing on all this Old Testament imagery, and he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. Once you weren't a people, but now you are a people in Christ. So we are this people that's been set apart to God, and that, man, we can unpack this with a number of implications, and I won't even mention everything that this means for us. But uh, for one thing, if we're citizens of God's nation, that immediately relativizes all other allegiances that we have. By that, I mean this is most important. It's a great thing to be an American. It's an even better thing to be a Texan. It's a great thing to have gone to the university that you did if you feel some sort of kinship there. It's a great thing to be a member of the family that you're in. But Scripture tells us that our primary center of our identity is in the kingdom of God. Those other things may be important, but they're secondary at best. Even your family relationships. Jesus says, you remember this in Luke's gospel to the uh, fellow who says, well, you know, first let me go and bury my father. Let the dead bury their dead. You need to come and follow me. These people talking about this other business that they have, Jesus says, no one who has put their hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So if we're citizens of the kingdom, this is our primary concern. We owe our loyalty to our Lord Jesus above anything or anyone else. And that draws on a great stream of biblical thought. You can think about the three friends in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who rather than bowing down to the idol, say that they're going to serve God. You can think about Daniel himself who refuses to abandon his custom of praying three times a day, even though that wasn't required of a Jew, but that was his custom. And so he continued to do it, even though he loved the king and was loyal to him, his primary loyalty was to God. You can think about the apostles in the book of Acts. After they've been warned in chapter 4 not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore, and yet they continue to do it. In chapter 5, they're dragged back in before the Sanhedrin, and didn't we warn you not to do this? Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. These other relationships may be important, but this one is of primary importance. Another implication of being citizens of God's kingdom is that that means we'll trust in him 
rather than trusting ourselves or trusting any other human power that we might be tempted to place our faith in. Now, obviously, the clearest examples we have of this come from the life of Jesus himself. But this sort of trust is characteristic of God's people throughout Scripture. You go back almost to the very beginning of Genesis, but our, our father in the faith, Abraham, Abraham's called up out of Ur, the most advanced civilization of its day. He doesn't even know where he's going. By human standards, this doesn't make any sense. He's leaving here the big city to go out into the desert, to go out into the back country, and if anybody asks him where he's going, well, I don't know. I'm just going where God tells me. That's completely illogical. But Abraham trusted in God. He was dependent upon him rather than on what common sense would tell us we should do. We already mentioned Israel depending on God in the exodus and in the conquest of the land. And in fact, when they run into trouble is when they opt for human wisdom. A great case study in this individually is David. You remember David, when he's a young shepherd boy, he goes out and he faces down Goliath armed with no more than a sling and a few smooth stones. They offer to give him some armor. He won't even take the armor because he says God's going to fight for him. It's this same David who has the opportunity more than once to revenge himself on Saul. He can get the jump on him. He can kill him, but he refuses to do that because he's the Lord's anointed. He leaves that sort of thing to God. That's when David was at his best. And yet you see him at the end of his life when he ends in a fairly tumultuous way. He goes and he takes a census of all his fighting men. God rebukes him for that. Why? Because he's trusting himself and his own power instead of trusting God. This man who had sworn off vengeance, one of the last things he does, and it's a dirty business, he calls his son Solomon in, and he says, you got a few things to do. Now, I've said I'm not going to get even with these guys, but you need to take them out. Um, some of the, your first acts, I think of Joab in particular, and Joab's a bad guy, but David hadn't done anything to him. And yet he says to Solomon, don't let his white head go down to the grave uh, easily essentially what he says. So David is a great case study of a man who went from trusting God fully completely to trusting in himself, human wisdom and power. We need to be sure that we're doing God's work and not other work and that we're using his methods that he's given us. The last thing to note is that if we're citizens of the kingdom of God, we need to be sure that we're shaped by our king. Kings determine what their kingdoms look like. Now, that's a whole series of lessons altogether on being shaped by Jesus, but I think about his ethical teachings, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. I've been reading a lot in that lately because I've been thinking about doing a sermon series on that, but go read the Sermon on the Mount and see just how radical a lot of that teaching there is and how do we measure up to that. Not very well most of the time. But this is what the king gives us. Is the, he's saying these are his laws, essentially. This is the way you need to go out and live in the world. See, we should be different. We should be visibly countercultural. People should see that we're citizens of God's kingdom. We're not part of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. That should be a real tangible difference. We could obviously unpack this in, in several more ways, but 
the challenge of really understanding what it means to be in the kingdom of God is living that out. Let's endeavor, above all else, to be kingdom people. To be people who place our allegiance to God's kingdom first. Who try to live out the laws of the kingdom, if we can call it that, who are shaped by our king. Who trust in him rather than trusting in ourselves. Now maybe you're here this night and you haven't done that. Maybe you're here and you're not even a citizen of that kingdom. I'd urge you to become one in the way that's laid out in scripture by placing your faith in Jesus, turning to God in repentance, being buried in the waters of baptism. That's sort of your oath of allegiance there. You become a citizen in the kingdom with that. Maybe you're here this evening and you already are a Christian, but you haven't been living like someone who's a citizen of the kingdom of God should, and you need to make changes. If you have any need at all, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.